Ever since the days of Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, Spider-Man creators have had a difficult time introducing colorful new villains into Peter Parker's world. For whatever reason, the specter of the original Ditko creations continued to loom over the title. Villains like Dr. Octopus, the Vulture, Electro, and the Green Goblin continue to get new stories year after year, fight after fight, scheme after scheme, until they ultimately wind up on the silver screen and are enshrined in pop culture history forever. But today, we aren't talking about those guys. No, we're talking about the villains you never hear about, or who are infamous for being so odd as to be unadaptable. That's right. Today, we aren't talking about the bad guys, or even the bad, bad guys. We're talking about the losers of the losers. Today, it's the forgettable guys. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon. They'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon The amazing Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, but the annuals don't count. Well, welcome to the new season of The Amazing Spider-Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange fun, and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. If you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past, present, and future, subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. In this season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, we'll be revisiting Spider-Man's adventures in the early 80s, where denim jackets were hip, Spider-Man got several new TV shows, and the creative voices at Marvel were constantly changing. But one of our favorite things to talk about each season is to take a look at the villains introduced during the era we're covering. And the late 70s and early 80s provided a forgettable but rich assortment of characters that include some of our absolute favorites, alongside villains that are genuine head scratchers. No doubt. There are so many villains to cover, as captured by this latest piece of episode artwork done for us by the wonderfully talented artist Nick Cagnetti. I mean, just look at that artwork, Mark. I mean, you could spend hours kind of picking it out and looking at it. Now, now, what is this based on? This is a this is based off of Ron's Friends piece, wasn't it? Yeah, Ron Friends and John Romita Sr., it's from the official Marvel Index of Amazing Spider-Man number four. It's this beautiful wraparound cover. You know, we wanted to capture all the forgettable villains from this season. And I thought, well, what if all the bad villains were standing behind Spider-Man? Because originally that image is flipped. So this is like a reveal that all of his loser guys were standing behind him the whole time. This is the ultimate homage, Dan. I, I think Nick really knocked this one out of the park. And if you're watching live, you know what Mark's talking about because we're also video streaming our show live. 
everyone who's tuning in can see this awesome piece of artwork featuring all these forgotten villains. So if you want to join us, tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube as we record Amazing Spider Talk Live. Plus, Mark and I will stick around after the show ends to interact with the audience and answer his question live. Just go to Amazing Spider Talk on YouTube, hit subscribe, and be sure to turn on notifications to be reminded when we go live. Let's get to the meat and potatoes of this show. All of these wonderfully awful villains from this era. So, again, we're talking about what? Like the villains from both the Marv Wolfman and Denny O'Neill runs of Amazing Spider-Man. Also, we're we're covering a bunch of villains that were introduced in a spectacular Spider-Man, correct? These are like from like around starting around issue 18, 19 or so into the Roger Stern run on that in that book, right? Yeah, absolutely. And we might hit on some Marvel team up guys here and there, but mostly stuff from spectacular and amazing. Mark, let's just like kick this off with none other than the first villain we're going to be talking about from that awesome spread. And that is, I'm calling him the new ox. Not uh, because if you remember, the old one died in Daredevil number 86. Right. I mean, who doesn't remember Daredevil 86? Now, the Ox, of course, is one of the founding members of the Enforcers, which is a, a Dicko Lee creation from the Silver Age. So, you know, you would think that that would be a major villain for Spider-Man, but actually the Enforcers were probably the one C D list villain that the Dick Lee run produced for the most part. Maybe that and like the 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 circus gang, right? <laughs> and the looter, I guess, if you want to count him there. Is he C list? Uh looter looter might be like E list. I don't know, man. I mean like that's 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 just pure <laughs> like, you know, objectivism personified via Dicko. But that's that you can go back to season one if you want to hear us talk about that. But yeah, so the Ox is back and we hardly missed him. Yeah, and this time he's working for the Lightmaster. So like if you're gonna work for any villain, the Lightmaster is quite the loser to work for. So like he's really downgrading himself, I think. You know, I think here the ox is a funny character because like the enforcers, like they die fairly regularly, but nobody more regularly than the ox. He has just been like multiple people. I think he came back a few years ago in the clone conspiracy, but who could say which version of the ox? And I don't think anybody really cares. He's just the ox. He's a big brooding dude. And the only thing that's notable here is he died and I guess he came back and he's a new guy, but we just call him the eye. And he's a goon. And yeah, it would make sense that he came back in clone conspiracy because I know there was this whole uh, spiel many moons ago on Twitter from Dan Slott. I think he was actually referring to the other enforcer, Montana, who I guess was killed off what during brand new day or something. And, and Dan Slott went on this big thing. I'm like, once I kill Montana, Montana's never coming back. And I'm like, wow, this is like some really like strict talk about a character like Montana. I mean, you know, I guess once they're gone, they just can't come back. So Ox was a big, big return during Clone Conspiracy. But the the, the next one on our list is, is actually a personal favorite of mine in terms of its badness. 
Dan, many moons ago, I actually did an article for Longbox Graveyard. Do you remember that website, Dan? Of course. I think it's still going. Yeah. Okay, good. So, and this was the the Bronze Age Bums was the name of this article. And I ranked what I thought were the 10 worst Spider-Man villains introduced during the Bronze Age. And this was my number one, Jackson Wheel, a.k.a. The Big Wheel, first appearance, Amazing Spider-Man number 182, last appearance, Amazing Spider-Man 182. You don't get any better than that. (laughs) I mean, he did last kind of an issue. Like, he gets introduced at the end and then... I mean, maybe makes five pages into the next issue. <laughs> he is he is so like just immediately destroyed. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, he he is what well, he's he's an inventor that it's working with Rocket Racer, but even like Rocket Racer is just demeaning him the whole issue, calling him Big Wheel, and he's like, "That's not my name. I'm Jackson Wheel." It's like whatever, Big Wheel. <laughs> I mean, like like nothing <laughs> sells the menace of a villain like having someone else on the page just. Constantly ridiculing them, right? Right. So he like goes to the tinkerer and the tinkerer takes his name and is like, well, I have this wheel thing sitting around. Uh, I'll give it to you. The big wheel itself is a bit of a spinoff already other than spinning itself from the Blackhawks villain war wheel, which was a, a giant wheel built by 1950s communists. And, you know, Marv, who invented this character, thought it would be fun to make him smaller and create a Spider-Man gimmick villain this is it. He's a gimmick. He is a wheel. And he dies very quickly, or is at least presumed dead, because he chases after Rocket Racer and ends up falling off a building into the Hudson River and add another tally to the list of Spider-Man villains that are just at any given time resting at the bottom of the Hudson River. You know, for someone who has like this no kill code, Spider-Man does have like this huge laundry list of really lame villains that he just kind of like goes, eh, they're dead. And this is one of them. It is worth knowing for people that are more uh, modern readers of Spider-Man mythos, where might they recognize Jackson Wheel's wheel contraption from? From Superior Spider-Man because he kind of reappeared there and was destroyed within an issue. So, I mean, keeping keeping the theme, he was destroyed very quickly. Yes. Yeah, so there you go. Like, what's, what's old is new again, especially in the world of Dan Slott when he was working on it. This next one, definitely not a stereotype. We're talking about the White Dragon from Amazing Spider-Man 184 and 185. Tell us a little bit about Philip Chang, Dan. Well, I mean, speaking of Dan Slott, I mean, he brought both the White Dragon and Philip Chang back into the book. Philip Chang is this kind of new cast member who's introduced in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. And and I say more in the pages of Spectacular, where he became kind of like a like an ongoing character in the offices of ESU where Peter worked. And he's he's a new student at ESU from Hong Kong, and he's always fearing for his life. And we aren't really sure why at first, but it turns out that he's being coerced to join one of the four dragon gangs which operate in Chinatown and are under control of the White Dragon. I don't know if there are like green dragons or blue dragons. I know there's a red dragon toy, which we talked about last season. Are there multiple dragons that are controlling these four gangs or do they all report to white dragon? That's never really clear to me. Obviously, like you said, I mean, the character does kind of like stand the test of time in a kind of roundabout way. But for the most part, like white dragon 
there's not really, you know, after outside of the Marv Wolfman run, doesn't really get a lot of play. I don't feel like in terms of like the 80s, would, would you say would you say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, a- absolutely. So like ultimately, you know, we find out that Philip Chang used to be a gang member until his parents were killed in an attack on him. And he renounced violence, which is why he won't join these gangs, other than it probably just being sensible. But we don't really learn much about the White Dragon. He kind of just exists. And I assume he probably still exists. He's just kind of not really explored very often because, I mean, at least the Dan Slot run seems to suggest that these gangs are kind of always going on. So, so yeah, that's that's the White Dragon. Right. The next one, again, another. this is another favorite of mine in terms of just over-the-topness. The Hypno-Hustler. From Spectacular Spider-Man, number 24. Background here was he was found on the streets by his manager, Bernie the Hustler, who before that was Antoine Delsoin or Delson. Not, not sure exactly the pronunciation there. He worked with a gang out of uh, Corona Park, who he still actually owes a debt to. But he basically works with his manager and trying to set up an act to kind of create some you know to to steal from people so what they do is they create this backup band called the mercy killers and they play hypnotic music at things and you know in this in this issue peter who's in like full john travolta gear here like it's just like really pathetic like you know rank this in like the costumes of peter parker like as one of the worst probably with like the (laughs) the jr jr muscle t from the roger stern run is another favorite but yeah, so they're you know they're out at a club and he, he hypnotizes all the people with his groovy music and he uses his guitar as a baseball bat and he's got he's got the switchblades in his feet too. So I guess instead of having goldfish in the heels, he had uh, switchblades. Over the top, camp, awful, but but also kind of sublimely ridiculous. He's really a product of his time. You know, he's come back here and there. There was a great couple issues of Avenging Spider Man. A few years back, I say a few years back, it's probably a decade ago now. And I thought that was a really fun story. And I feel like, I mean, I love this issue. I think it's a really fun issue and the art is great. And I I like, I think it's a good one and done villain. I actually really enjoy the hypno hustler for, for all the silliness, but it's the kind of character where it's so dated that it's like hard to bring it back. I mean, you have to do like a reinvention, I guess like akin to the dazzler to bring this villain back or maybe he's just a product of his time, you know, and, and you keep him that way locked in this disco thing. But I don't know. He's always had a, I've always had a soft spot for the hypno hustler, even if he is ultimately super underused. I definitely can see the soft spot. I mean, you know, at the same token, I mean, the, the, the powers here, it's hypnosis. We have multiple hypnosis villains in this episode. I think the look of the character and just the, the gimmick is, is, for sure the selling part not necessarily the power set but like yeah i mean if if you i don't think you could ever actually build a serious story around the hypno hustler but put him with like chip sadarsky or i think this the avenging story was that it was either zeb wells or joe kelly i think who wrote that either one of them do comedy and superhero comics well and and that was a solid story so i think that's kind of what you need to get to get a good hypno hustler story for sure Now, this next one is one that I had totally forgotten about until my reread. And like, I'm surprised we're not really seeing this guy again, but that is, he's got multiple names, Big M or the Masked Marauder. You know, Big M, we'll just call him Big M because he's got a big M. 
he's the head of the Magia, which is, you know, if you don't know the Marvel Universe's version of the Mafia, like one letter removed. And, you know, for a while, he's sending all these goons after Spidey, you know, pretty consistently throughout all of Spectacular, or at least like 10 issues of Spectacular. And he's ultimately revealed in kind of like issue 25, like what he looks like and who he is and and what his motivations are. And he's kind of like trying to do the standard villain thing where he holds the city hostage for money or he wants to flex his power in some way, you know, standard mafia stuff. But he has all these goons that work for him. And I think the most interesting one is he's got this like droid that is called either the bird droid or the tri-man, depending on what form it's in. It shifts from like a bladed silver bird to like this silver man with this diamond on his belt. Do you have any memories of this, Mark? No, I mean, this is like, this is a flush of memories right now. Just looking at this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So he has like, he's been uploaded with like the skills of three of big M's henchmen and uh, called the dancer, the mangler and brain, which is why he's called the tri man. He's three men in one. At at some point, eventually, he becomes the a bomb droid. So not only is he a bird droid or a tri man, he's a bomb droid, and he's got this nuclear payload that the mass marauder is using to blackmail New York City. So it's kind of up to Spider Man to stop him from blowing up all of New York. And I, I don't know. I have some fond memories of this guy, but like it's another one of those things that seems like a, a crazy Bill Mantlo like a Marvel team up idea. Although spectacular tends to dip into the weird every now and again. Yeah, for sure. Spectacular was definitely more of the trial run of the weird villains. Now this next one, this, this might be one of the first ones that maybe some people take umbrage with in terms of calling them forgettable. But I would say from a Spider-Man perspective, this person is forgettable. And that would be Jigsaw from Amazing Spider-Man number 188. Now, I guess we, we Jigsaw is kind of a demonstration of the continuing trend of main characters from the Punisher series being introduced in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man, which, of course, started with the Punisher himself being introduced in Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> by Jerry Conway and Ross Andrew in, in the 1970s. But yeah, so Jigsaw is this crime lord, but who's afraid of superheroes. And the name is derived from his like uh, very scarred up face that kind of looks like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, although like he kind of has this motif with his costume as well. And in this issue, he takes over uh, a cruise ship that Peter and his friends are on. But, you know, Jigsaw would basically go on to become a, a, a pretty significant nemesis for the Punisher. Of course, you know. Kingpin, another Spider-Man villain, is more or less considered the main nemesis for Punisher. But people who watch the Punisher Netflix series, Jigsaw is the main villain on that. So, you know, for sure. I mean, like if, if they're making TV series about you, you can't be that forgotten, right? You know, it's it's funny because I, I until rereading this, you know, obviously I knew he had first appeared here. But like, it, it you know, I, I've since read so many comics with him. It's hard to it's hard to remember that he did actually first appear in Amazing Spider-Man. And I think of note, like uh, this cover from Amazing Spider-Man 188 is awesome. I love the kind of like red outlines, the kind of neon colors on this on this cover. It, I think it's a pretty iconic 
cover. It's a pretty iconic cover. And then, you know, for all you collectors out there, any cover with black in it is always just a pain in the neck to get in, get in a decent condition because the black just scuffs up and gets ruined so quickly. But yeah, no, this is this is a great cover. Obviously, the characterization and the story of Jigsaw in the Netflix series versus what we get here. I mean, it's completely different. I mean, this character doesn't it doesn't really come across remotely as menacing as he does in that series. But hey, you know, like everyone's got to start somewhere. And the Punisher was basically supposed to be uh, a hired goon henchman uh, for the Jackal. And look what happens. So you just never know what might happen in comics sometimes. Right. <laughs> Another reason why collecting Amazing Spider-Man is so expensive. Because yes. <laughs> just randomly they'll like throw a jigsaw at you in an otherwise un unspectacular issue. You know, I mean, it's fine, but like, you know, suddenly it's the first appearance of somebody. There you go. Okay. So jigsaw. And if, um, and if they make a TV show about you, that makes it even more expensive. Good thing I bought this one years ago. So. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> and speaking to like the collectability of it, you're right. Like my, my particular version of this issue has a big old bend in the corner and you know, after looking for so long for one that wasn't scuffed up, I just kind of like bit, bit the bullet and was like, fine, I don't mind a bend. Yeah, it's just like this this one in the first Molten Man or like the like the notorious like, ah, oh, that issue for a collector for Spider-Man. Like, oh, no, too many black covers. <laughs> but but think about the collectability. Right. Players. Come on. The speculation. But tell us about our next guy, because I'm sure there's going to be some pushback on this guy because of one story that I just just spies to know and that came years after uh the era that we're talking about here right <laughs> i mean not all of these guys are forgettable but like this is a forgettable era is is more correct yes because the next guy we're talking about is carry on which you know debuted in the great issue with the subtitle carry on my wayward son uh, one of those great brilliant puns we talked about carry on like last season in our spectacular episode with tyler when he was on the show, but like, you know, important to talk about him again, because actually a bunch of villains really spawn from carry on and carry on gets like a, a pretty decent arc, you know, in the, in this book, a, a spectacular Spider-Man. He first appears throughout several issues as a tease. And even when we do actually see him, we don't really know who he is for quite a while. He, he first appears as a corpse and everything he touches decays or is repulsed, which allows him to fly. It's just like, for me, the most cockamamie reason for someone flying is that like because everything is decays around you, that air is repelled by you. And so if that somehow lifts you off the ground. Fine. Like, fine. <laughs> I, I don't get it. It makes about as much sense as Superman flying, to be honest, like that his jumps somehow transformed to him spawning you sound incredulous like, uh, and you force out of nowhere. But I am incredulous. Yeah. Yeah. Just a little bit here. We're really twisting logic pretzels here with with who this character ends up being, right? So he kind of like wreaks havoc throughout the book for a while. He like destroys Peter's apartment and is like writing all of these things all over the walls. That's his like signature is literally his signature yes. on everything. He like destroys ESU's library and like everything he touches turns to dusk. And he knows Peter's identity, which is like probably the biggest clue as to like who he is. And he like suggests early on that he's out to avenge the deaths of Gwen and George Stacy. So Mark, he ultimately ends up becoming the first clone 
of Professor Miles Warren. Yeah, yes, which is why for all you Clone Saga junkies out there, you know, there's the original Clone Saga that we talked about last season, you know, issues 147 and 149. But technically, the Carry On Saga is a part of that. I think there's even been some collections of the Clone Saga and like the preludes to it that include this story in it. So, I mean, that that has given this story, I guess, a little bit of extra longevity based on how it ties into the Miles Warren cloning thing. I don't really mind the story until it gets really wacky. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But so the reason that Carry On is this like living zombie character is... He was being cloned while Miles Warren died. And as a result, he was locked inside of the cloning casket and it killed him in the process. But it like continued, I guess, like reviving his body and developing his body, his dead body. So he like when he came out of the casket, eventually he was like living dead. He was carry on. So there you go. That's how carry on exists. It's absurd, but fine. You know, not as absurd as the cloning stuff would ultimately get. No, and of course, Carrion would be one of Carnage's henchmen in Maximum Carnage years later. Although it wasn't Miles Warren at this point, right? I mean, I feel like the character—it it was something different, right? I'm forgetting what the wrinkle was there. Asking me to keep up with the the whole ongoing history of Carrion. Right, right. Sorry, sorry. I'm not trying to put you able to do. Not trying to put you on the spot live no. here. Although I feel like I'm on the spot here because the, the the next villain up, I'm like, wait, who is this guy again? And this is even coming after rereading a lot of this stuff. This is Darter, who is uh, yeah, one of the Carrion's henchmen. Uh, He's a fly, like a like looks like a flying squirrel in a wingsuit for the most part. I mean, like. What, what what were we doing here, Bill Matlow? <laughs> no, you would not be blamed for forgetting who Darter is because the comic, like he appears, I mean, I would say maybe in like 12 panels. Like, I don't know why we needed this character to be a supervillain. So basically Darter is this like ESU student that like discovers carry on. He's this guy named Randy Vale, and he's the one that discovers Carrion in the cloning tube and frees him. And as a result, he's kind of like kept under Carrion's thumb and is his henchman. I forget the exact reason, but like, yeah, he basically dies two issues after being unceremoniously introduced. And he really is only ever used as someone to kind of fight against the white tiger who's kind of teaming up with Spider-Man throughout this story. But yeah, he literally appears and then dies not as fast as big wheel, but pretty damn quickly. And then speaking of more henchmen of carry on, we have the protoplasmic preclone. Say that. Just say, just, just say that <laughs> comics. <laughs> say it. <laughs> just say. Yeah. So this thing was created by carry on from an extracted blood sample of Peter Parker. And it is a primitive, or this is a quote, primitive amoebic ancestor of Peter Parker, unquote. You know, one of those. Yeah. I mean, like you do. And it has, quote, all of your power, Parker, but none of your humanity, unquote. Now we're stretching this clone thing pretty far. But yeah, it's basically a green blob with eight arms and a spider sense. I guess like that is it. This is just a reminder that in the nineties, there were a bunch of comic book creators who went back and reread these issues and said, there is more story to tell here. People. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, so this thing fights Spider-Man for a while as shown on the cover for Spectacular 31. And eventually, because Spider-Man can't kill, they have to come up with some backwards way for him to do so. And that backwards way is that this thing devours Carrion and in doing so is touched by Carrion and dies itself. And so there you go. That is the end of the protoplasmic pre-clone and all of the villains that would be born out of this clone saga redux the pre-prologue or prologue redux or whatever anyway this is this is a good time to to segue out of this for a moment here right dan (laughs) yeah absolutely you can talk about that in our Slack, yeah. Right, so hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on the Slack. The Amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join, and you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, protoplasmic pre-clones, and more. Yeah, I'm there all the time. Just this past week, we've been marveling over Jan from Finland's growing collection of Finnish Spider-Man comics. They're super cool and unlike anything you've ever seen before. So if you want to join in on this awesome Spider-Man community, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And, you know, once you're there, be sure to let us know what you think of this new episode you're watching right now. But Mark, let's get back to it. Let's talk about some more of these villains. The next one is not quite as forgettable as the protoplasmic pre-clone some people are already getting their pitchforks ready on this right. one. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't know, Dan. I mean, this this feels like a pretty one and done character to me, right? Or uh... <laughs> oh, of course, the bl- no, it's the black cat. Yeah, Felicia Hardy people, people who like superheroes who kind of have little romantic dalliances with femme fatales. This is your villain, right? Felicia is, of course, presented as a villain at first, but one with romantic intentions for Spider Man. It's also worth noting that she was actually. Actually, originally, as we mentioned in our Marv, our Marv Wolfman episode, originally intended to be a villain for Spider-Woman with a completely different look. And they kind of changed that all up. But here she is, one of pr- truly one of the greats. I mean, not really as much as a villain anymore, except during the dance slot run for a while, which got a little weird, but whatever. But Felicia Hardy, I mean, this is as memorable as it gets. Go on the secondary market for that. That's worth a pretty penny right now. She's a villain at first, and I think a truly memorable one at that. You know, I think she's presented in interesting ways that I don't think we've really ever seen return to that much, where she seems like a person that's really struggling with, like, mental illness. And that mental illness is really fixated around Spider-Man. And she says she has this whole collection. And I think, at least for me, I could never tell when I first read this if she was being serious or not. But then ultimately we do find out that she it does seriously have a thing for Spider-Man. And then they ultimately kiss in a really stunning panel where they're, you know, locking lips, if you will. But her whole goal is she's trying to break her father out of jail before he dies. And her father would actually kind of go on to be kind of a big character as well, mostly in flashbacks. But like we return to him a lot, I think, through the history of the character. It would take time before Felicia was fleshed out as a character. But like, I mean, you can see even in these early appearances that there, there's a foundation there for a, a multifaceted character. I mean, this was not meant to be a throwaway character for sure. I mean, like there, there were, you know, different sympathetic elements. Like you said, the, the, the whole issue with mental illness, which, you know, while it was kind of dropped 
to the degree that it was initially presented. I do feel like other creators would later kind of like touch upon things in Felicia's past. And I'm not just talking about that Kevin Smith miniseries, but there were other things going on. Like, like we are, we are led to believe by many other creators in, in the years that have since come that Felicia had a pretty messed up upbringing, which kind of explains why she's kind of always tap danced on this uh, line between not heroism, but like, you know, wanting to do good, but not doing good. You know, of note in this issue of Amazing Spider-Man 194, her lackeys, Bruno Granger and Boris Corpse appear. And, you know, they've kind of appeared over the years, but now they're actually in the this really excellent Black Cat ongoing series that's coming out right now. And if, if you had to kind of quiz me on my favorite Spider-Man title, even over Amazing Spider-Man, Black Cat is my favorite thing that's being published out of the spider office at the current moment. Uh, really excellent. And those two guys are, are major players in that book. You know, so I don't know, Mark, are you reading that title? I'm, I'm not. I'm trying to wait to catch up on Unlimited, which I probably could at this point since there hasn't been comics in two months. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I mean, in addition to her having her, I mean, and she's been in other series and miniseries over the years. Obviously, she shows up in the 81 animated series, which we're going to be talking about this coming season. Felicia's a main character in the Spider-Man animated series from the 90s, of course. She hasn't really showed up truly in a movie yet. I mean, Felicia Hardy is name dropped in the Mark Webb Amazing Spider-Man 2, right? If I'm if memory serves. Yeah. But played by a played by a Felicia herself. Right. Right. But like, isn't that I mean, like this is like long been the rumor from the Sony verse that we're going to get a black cat movie. I mean, like this is like, yes, we're calling this episode the forgettable guys. But I mean, black cat is neither a guy nor remotely forgettable. I mean, it's truly the one exception to the rule here. And I think like she's perfect to be in a movie. It's surprising that it's taken this long and you still haven't gotten anything. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting about her appearance here is that like Black Cat's had a kind of a changing power set over the years. And, you know, so here she starts off. She always had she's had bad luck powers that seem to manifest here. And then it would later be retconned that like she didn't. And then she goes to like the kingpin to to like commit a crime to get bad luck powers. So it's kind of confusing in regards to like what her power set actually is at the outset. And one of the things that I think is curious that we've never really seen done again is that every time she appears and she casts a shadow, it's always in the shape of a cat. I mean, that's like an artist flourish, but it seems almost like a superpower here as is presented in these books. Yeah, no doubt. It's a it's it's a pretty cool, cool visual, visualization for sure. But speaking of cool visualizations, do we want to get to our next character? <laughs> I, I don't know if this counts, but sure. All right. It's the Iguana from Spectacular Spider-Man number 32. Tell us a little bit about this guy, Mark. Well, well, you know, you would look at the Iguana and initially think, well, wait, doesn't Spider-Man already have a villain called the Lizard? But wait, it gets better. So basically, the origins of the Iguana, who first appears in Spectacular 32, is that Dr. Kirk Connors, a.k.a. the Lizard, tried to use the Innervator which is a device from Amazing Spider-Man number 164, to heal his arm using a rare guana species. And instead, the device backfires, turning Connors into the lizard and then draining his lizard persona into the closest reptile, which, of course, is the iguana. And then we have this guana at night. It has, like, Connors' memories. So it's basically like the lizard, but kind of 
sort of displaced from Kurt Connors. I mean, like just what we need. And and this is this is coming off the heels of Stegron from a few years ago. So like you know more reptilian characters playing with the lizard. Yay! I mean, the Kurt Connors can never learn a lesson. Like it's just one unending way to get grow his arm back. I mean. Does Kurt Connors become a perfunctory character when, you know, like we have like amputee devices that just are as good as the real thing, you know? I, I don't know. But this is all very confusing. And, you know, moments later, even though you think that the lizard persona is removed from Connors, he turns back into the lizard again so that he can defeat the iguana. So Spider-Man is caught in between the lizard and the iguana Everybody fights until Spider-Man uses a portable innervator, which, you know, you got to have one of those on you at all times. Right. I mean, and that pocket size is even better. So he siphons all of the lizard back into the iguana so that he can, like, quote, kill him. And Kurt Connors is cured, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Kurt Connors? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the iguana, yeah, it's right. Killed. Quotation marks. <laughs> so there's not much to say about this guy. He is a knockoff lizard. Yes. Lizard lizard two or three, depending on what you count Stegron as. But speaking of Stegron, you know, our next character. <laughs> Stegron actually never appeared with this character except when it's on our show. Dan, uh, this, is, this is a truly momentous moment for us. <laughs> We're here to talk about none other than Swore. Reacted, reacted, reanimated Nazi skeleton made entirely out of bees. Woo! <laughs> yes, yeah, Swarm, the reanimated Nazi skeleton made entirely out of bees, also known as Fritz von Meyer, our favorite villain on our show, or is he, or is he our least favorite villain? We're never really sure. I mean, the people chose him, Dan. We gotta always go back. He is the people's choice, Dan. The people put him on our show <laughs> so if you don't know mark who is swarm like before he's a guest on our show who is this guy well actually it's worth noting that this is this is not technically his first appearance i think he did show up in the champions initially but then he has become a spider-man villain he is fritz von meyer a apiculturist is that how you pronounce that i i i am yeah. i think it's apiculturist apiculturist who uses insect toxins for use in chemical warfare which is just totally something nazis would do so after the war uh ended he fled to south america where he found that the bombing had uh, irradiated a group of bees making them more vicious and giving uh, them a collective intelligence like like what happens when bees get radiated? Naturally, because Fritz is a Nazi, the bees attack him and kill him, and they absorb his body and mind, and then rebuild him into swarm. Uh, like you do. Like you do. I mean, you know. So, again, this is now a, a literally a reanimated Nazi skeleton made of bees. They in this issue of Spectacular, Doctor Sloan mistakenly reactivates a queen bee, and she breeds millions of bees in minutes which would probably do a lot for our environment right now, if only that was possible, and eventually spreads. <laughs> and Swarm turns the billion into a giant hive with a honeycomb and giant bees. And, like, yeah, it's as, it's as great as it sounds, people. So, like, let's really talk about this, Mark. Like, apart from him as a guest, like, what do you think about Swarm as a villain? You know, <laughs> when I... so. Going back to that article I, I was mentioning earlier in the episode, the Bronze Age buns, I, bums, I had Swarm on the list, and I actually had some pushback 
from people about Swarm because they were like, hey, you know, yeah, he's utterly ridiculous. But first of all, the character design is pretty cool, which, you know what? Like, how many villains got like this really swank purple cape like that? Yeah, I mean, like, that's pretty cool. And like, <laughs> I have no idea how he functions. I, right, like, right. It bends the mind of plausibility, this character, in every way possible. And yet, like, I don't know, like. Swarm is pretty formidable and it's just it's just the biography is ridiculous though. Like I, I like I, I would just believe if a hive of bees just got hit by an atomic bomb that the, the, the villain would be equally as successful, quotation marks, if you will, than what they ended up doing here with Fritz von Meyer, the Nazi. Like you didn't need to like make him a Nazi as well, you know, like, but okay, why not combine the radioactive bees? With a dude who's devoured by them and they absorb his consciousness. I mean, it is absurd. What, what I think is great about Swarm is that like all the creators who've worked on him after this have basically treated him like the joke that he is and had a great time with him. Yeah. I mean, again, like Swarm is not someone that I think you can do a very serious multi-part arc of, you know, end of the world stakes with. He's not Thanos. Put him in the hands of the right creator who, you know... Treats him with a bit of levity and a lot of fun here. And speaking of levity, you know, who treats him better than we do, right, Dan? As you guys probably expected, we got a special treat for our visitors today. Now, obviously, we can't have a Forgettable Guys episode without talking to the friend of the pod, Swarm, the reanimated Nazi skeleton made entirely out of bees. But in addition to Swarm, for the first time on our show, we're going to be talking to the one and only, one of his chief medical advisors, Dr. Fobby. So Swarm, Doctor, thanks for joining us. Sigail! I don't even know why I brought Dr. Fobby with me. I know everything there is to know about medicine and this episode's villains. Right, so let's start with the second part of that. Swarm, how does it feel to be a part of the Forgettable Guys pantheon of Spider-Man's villains? Ah, first of all, that is a nasty question and you're a nasty person. Second of all, clearly any episode that features a group of villains with Swarm in it talking about the greatest adversaries Spider-Man has ever faced. Just look at these guys. Iguana is absolutely terrific. And Ox 2 is fantastic. And many people are saying Carrion is just fantastic. He was in maximum carnage after all. Uh, of, of course, of course. Any, anything to add, Dr. Falby? I think what Swarm is trying to say is that, yes, these are all villains that have faced Spider-Man at some point in his career. And Spider-Man is one of the greatest superheroes ever. So, yes, these are all adversaries of a great superhero. I I just inherently trust you, Dr. Falby. So, uh, Dr. Falby, do you think a villain like Iguana is really on the level of, say, someone like Dr. Octopus or the Green Goblin? Well, the iguana is definitely green for sure. Of course the squana is the greatest. Well, not the greatest. This is one, by the way. I'm the greatest. But he showed up in the comics around the same time I did. And while I had the most historic victory ever in the comics, like really, really historic, no other villain has beaten Spider-Man better than I have. I would, I would actually like to hear some more from Dr. Falby. Again, I just inherently trust him because he seems trustworthy. Dr. Falby, do, do you have any concern about how murder hornets might impact the Marvel Universe in the coming months? 
Ah, yes, murder hornets. Well, if you look at the data, I think this is a threat we have to take very seriously for at least the next 12 to 18 months, if not long. We can't shut down comics for the murder hornets. We need to open comics back, especially for characters that are not at risk for murder hornets, like the iguana and Millie the model, probably. I don't know. Look, Swarm, at I really me. don't mean to cut you off, uh, but, but Swarm, wouldn't murder hornets put you the most at risk? That, that, that's it. You're nasty. You're fake news. No more questions. That's it. This is Dr. Falby again, Dan. It was nice getting to meet you and everyone else today. Uh, don't forget to wear your face mask around the murder hornets. Uh, be safe, everybody. This is great. Dr. Falby, if you could just come back next time and leave Swarm out of this, I think everybody will be better off. So thank you guys for coming today, Swarm. I mean, I don't, I dare say it's a pleasure to see you again, but here you are. So, all right, let's get back to it, Mark. It was nice to have Swarm back again. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'm i a little concerned about, you know, how tight of a leash she keeps Fauby on for sure. And then, you know, of course, you know, Stegron's still over in the corner talking about Mother and what a great job Swarm is doing over the last few months with these murder hornet situations. So, I don't know, Dan, it's, it's pretty exhausting. <laughs> Does everybody from Swarm's, you know, entourage talk in the same manner? I mean, well, you know, they're all essentially from the same hive. I mean, you know, I, I think I think if you listen closely, Fauby has a different kind of rhythm to his voice for sure. Right. For sure. Yeah. 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 Very displaced. Very displaced. Oh, all right. Christ. So 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 so, Mark, I, I think we can keep going. We're going to talk about the next one. I mean, we can't leave Swarm behind. The specter of Swarm will always haunt us. And, and like what he's doing to our poor show. So let's get to the next one. Really forgettable, Mark. I can't imagine this character ever came back. And that is the Schizoid Man from Spectacular Spider-Man number 39. When I think of a, of a Schizoid Man, I think of, was it, King Crimson, which is an old prog rock band. But what, what, what can you tell me about the, the Schizoid Man from Spectacular Spider-Man? Yeah, sure. So, you know, part of... Peter joining ESU is that he gets all these new lab mates and one of them is Chip Martin. And there's like kind of something wrong with like Chip Martin from the very start. Like what's up with this guy? He's just weird and seems to be on edge about everything. I mean, he's an and, adult um, named Chip. So that's a bad start right there, Dan. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a really solid point. Um, so at a costume party at his parents' home, this kind of swanky costume party, because his father is a senator, a, a fight with Morbius kind of like breaks out because of course, and the schizoid man unlocks his psychic powers, which he's been trying to repress for a long time. So he becomes the schizoid man, which means he has two distinct personalities. And so one of those personalities is like the delightful Chip Martin, who's dealing with the, his name as an adult. And the, the other personality is this crazy guy that can manifest objects from his imagination and make them real. And ultimately we find out that his parents have been using drugs to like kind of calm him. And, and this is all unlocked because his mother, how dare she, she used drugs to ease his childbirth. And those drugs got into his bloodstream and gave him psychic powers that are triggered by emotions. So don't you dare get the epidural. No, natu because, natural uh, birth. You could end up with a schizoid man. Man. Talk, yeah, talk, exactly. Talk, when did the show get political, Dan? <laughs> 
I, I don't know. So, you know, this is this is the stand we're taking. So so ultimately he did, you know, he did. He doesn't believe in healing crystals. He went to psychotherapy and that helped him to control the emergence of his other personality. So, yeah. And so he can just like conjure up crazy stuff at will, which makes him basically indestructible. And he, I think he believe I believe he goes back to ESU and starts tormenting everybody. Spider-Man nearly kills him like he does because Spider-Man himself in the part of using the innervator to stop the iguana. That damn innervator again. He has absorbed, yeah, well, the pocket innervator. He's just got it on him at all times. He basically has become this enraged Spider-Man because of the lizard energy in his body, and he uses that kind of energy to defeat the Schizoid Man, nearly killing him, but ultimately unlocking our next villain, Mark. Who is that? Well, the Spider-Lizard. Which is basically like the energy, you know, Spider-Man with the energy from the iguana and it turns him into this like aggressive lizard character. And uh, Kurt Connors ultimately sneaks into the sewers after him and uses the antidote that Spider-Man originally used on him to cure him. Whew. Do 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 some mental gymnastics with that, Dan. And of course, the spider lizard, just another toy to sell in like the 90s, I guess. I mean, I, I remember owning a spider lizard toy, or maybe I'm mixing that up with man spider, but, uh, but I feel like this has been reproduced in other places. It's pretty cool seeing a lizard with Spider-Man stuff on, I guess. So did he come back during the Dan slot run? I know there's the issue where everybody at horizon turned into a lizard and I'm trying to remember if Spider-Man himself turned into a lizard in that run. I don't remember Dan, but I don't, I don't think so, but if anyone would have brought Spider Lizard back, it would have been Dan Slot. So I, I, I should, I should bite my lip on that. So speaking of deep cuts that turned out to not be terribly deep, this next villain is from uh, Spectacular Spider-Man number forty-three, which is notable because it's written by Roger Stern before he came on to write Amazing Spider-Man, and that is the first appearance of Roderick Kingsley, who is kind of this effeminate fashion designer right or 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 like i mean is he a designer but he's he's in the fashion world and he's got like this kind of criminal background whatever happened to that kingsley guy dan <laughs> yeah in this issue spider-man describes him as quote even at my spindliest this guy would have made me look like hercules so yeah it's it's weird that this is the kind of debut of roger kingsley who if you're if you know us would ultimately become the Hobgoblin in the 90s after, you know, being reappearing briefly in Amazing Spider-Man and being the plan that Stern had all along to be the Hobgoblin. But reading these issues, there is no indication that this guy could ever become a ruthless killer. No, I mean, like he I mean, again, besides like the effeminate qualities, which I mean, you know, that doesn't necessarily make it disqualifying. But like, I mean, like he's basically treated as a coward. There is no look-alike brother that's not a twin that's in, that's suggested here yet i mean like it, it's a total like stab in the dark and yet if you talk to roger stern over and over about what he was intending for the hobgoblin which would come a few years after this he will say time and time again that Roderick kingsley was the plan from the get-go from jump street from now that he wanted to use his character in some fashion down the road maybe not as he didn't he didn't flesh out the idea of a hobgoblin yet when he introduces character in spectacular but he had plans so i i don't know how you can get that again like i feel like the other villain that shows up in this issue is kind of given a little more credence and who is that dan 
Well, first, let me ask you this. Was this character ultimately retconned to be Daniel Kingsley in these scenes? Like that was kind of my understanding is the reason he acted this way and so different from who he ultimately became was because this was Daniel Kingsley already posing as him. I mean, I I don't know if that was like officially the retcon, but like, yeah, if you want to like, you know, go down that logic hole that would make the most sense. I mean, like there's, there's also an issue of like what I think it's web of Spider-Man where like Kingsley just kind of gets like unceremoniously shot and it's like almost like off panel. It's like just so quick and sudden. And like, you can maybe say that was Daniel Kingsley too, but like you could go back and, and retcon that. But of course, like Stern likes to say that, Oh, there, there no retcons needed. It's all there. <laughs> so I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, the Hobgoblin would kind of ultimately become a bit of a fashion designer in that now his role in the Marvel Universe is selling and distributing, I guess, and perhaps making costumes that villains can rent to pretend to be other villains. So in a way, they've kind of made this full circle. But like Kingsley here is just like, I know that he's not a forgotten character like the Hobgoblin, but like if Roger Sturden hadn't come back in the nineties, no one would have ever thought about Kingsley ever again. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't want to get into the entire Hobgoblin saga here because you know, we're, that would be another couple of hours worth of an episode, but like, yeah, I mean like Kingsley, Kingsley was totally turfed. And even when Stern came back and did Hobgoblin lives and, and kind of pulled the rug out like, Oh no, it's not just Roderick Kingsley, but he had a brother, Daniel Kingsley. I think even then in the moment, everyone was just like, wait, what? Who? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, you know, the, the story goes that like, you know, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, when they took over the book uh, from Stern, they were just like, wait, the, who do you want to make the Hobgoblin? No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, like this character was just kind of like just a total one off forgettable character that was kind of a skeezy shyster. I mean, you know, like he did evolve from kind of this effeminate character to being like a little bit more kind of scummy, but like, again, not really a real threat in any way. Like, I mean, this character was kind of like, you know, just a goon for the most part. In fact, he is not even the main villain in this comic. Like you were alluding to earlier, the main villain from spectacular 43 is Belladonna. Who is Belladonna, Mark? Well, Belladonna is a she, and she busts into Kingsley's place, accusing him of stealing fashion designs. She is uh, dressed in head to toe from purple with a hat and a veil and emits a a gas comprised of neoatropine, which is devised from the Belladonna plant. You know, actually, the the costuming here kind of looks similar to what they were originally proposing for Black Hat, which is kind of (laughs) funny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What else do you want to tell us about Belladonna, Dan? Yeah, so she like ultimately busts up Kingsley's fashion show uh, and and replaces his new line with burlap sacks oh, the horror. and gases the place. Yes, I know it's so terrible. And 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 again, this is to say like this is kind of the debut of Roger Stern in Spectacular Spider-Man. And you know, we're going to talk about Roger Stern next season, but like his run of comics on Amazing is some of our favorites. And this is such a weird debut for Roger Stern to kind of start off with this kind of very low threat character. And Belladonna would kind of reappear over and over again through his run on Spectacular. So like later on in a future story, she stages a trap for Spider-Man and orders this new Prowler to commit crimes for her. And Spidey thinks that she is this character named Desiree Von Pope, but she's actually her sister 
Narda Ravana. There's like a switcheroo involved, which to me is kind of an early proto version of Stern playing with ideas that he would reuse for the Hobgoblin. There's like these twin sisters that are diff- each posing as Belladonna in different versions. And to me, this is just an early recycled like idea. I mean, he would recycle this idea for the Hobgoblin. So you can see him kind of already playing with these themes that he would use later on. There you go, Dan. It's kind of forgettable. I don't think we've seen Belladonna since, right? <laughs> no, and I wouldn't mind. I think she's kind of a neat character, but like the stakes of her are so low. Like I could care less about a fashion show being disrupted. So speaking of low stakes, why don't we, we're now kind of getting into the Denny O'Neill era of Amazing Spider-Man, and that is uh, issue 208 with the debut of Fusion. Now, Fusion actually kind of has a bit of a of a interesting background in terms of creation, right? Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, Denny O'Neill was kind of like freshly anointed onto Amazing Spider-Man. This is his second issue, and he was attending the Maple Con, the second ever Maple Con in Ottawa. And, you know, he was working with, with fans and, and he kind of asked them like, Hey, let's all create a villain together. So fusion is ultimately the result of a fusion between him and the fans to create this thing. You know, Jim Shooter and Mark Gruenwald kind of like worked on this all together uh, to plot this all out. And fusion is, terrible I, I don't really know how else to s- say it yeah i mean there's there's not much going on here now of course fusion is pinky and hubert uh fuser i'm assuming it's fuser to kind of go with fusion uh and they are little people twins one works as a scientist the other as a janitor there is of course as there always is in these cases a mistake with a subatomic particle accelerator, and the two are fused together. So the fusers are fused. They fight with each other and split up, which drains their power. But they can also absorb energy from electronics. And in the big fight in this issue, Spider-Man anticlimactically knocks them out, and we never hear from them again. He literally just, like, pushes them apart, and then they fall on the ground, and he's like, all right, see you later, and leaves them. And we would never... Well, I guess we do kind of hear from them again in the Paul Jenkins run. They're brought back in another uh, much better story because Paul Jenkins is writing it. But yeah, totally forgettable fusion. Not quite totally forgettable as she has shown up a few times. But now we have uh, from 209, the first appearance of Calypso, which is uh, Craven the Hunter's long term girlfriend of sorts or or lady companion, maybe uh, a sort of voodoo princess. She thinks Craven has gone soft, so she uh, kind of acts as a foil to him to prompt him to kind of like, you know, regain his uh, previous gusto, I guess you would say. It's worth noting, fans of the initial McFarlane run on adjectiveless Spider-Man, Calypso is kind of one of the main villains there alongside Lizard. So, uh, you know, like she, she's gotten some burn as a Spider-Man villain over the years. Yeah, I would say like in the 90s when Craven was dead and all of his like progeny started kind of taking over the various titles, Calypso really kind of became a much bigger character in the pages of this book. But there's nothing really memorable about her here in Amazing 209. I mean, she's got an interesting design, I guess, that would ultimately be redone, but we don't ever hear from her for a while. So and and Craven, I don't even think she was in the most recent Craven story. So she's kind of been like picked up and put down 
here and there over time. For our next one, we're actually going to villains with new identities. I, my favorite, because always the second time over is the better time for a villain, right? I mean, you know, why, why, why create a new villain when you could just put someone else under a mask and that would be the new Prowler? Tell us a little bit about the new Prowler, Dan. Sure, right. This is the new Prowler because Hobie Brown had retired from being the Prowler. But ultimately, just like the Hobgoblin, Again, Stern testing out early ideas for the Hobgoblin. Someone stole his stuff out of his locker, and now they get to be the Prowler, but they forgot the cape. So it's just like a dude in a kind of like purple and green costume without the snazzy purple cape that maybe Swarm took the cape. Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. There, there you There's go. your no there prize you right there. You won, Dan. There's your no prize. Yeah. Okay. So, so it turns out that this new prowler is pulling heights related to fashion for Belladonna. And, you know, he also doesn't have the logo on his chest. So he's really a stripped down version of the prowler. And ultimately Spider-Man defeats him. And it turns out that this isn't a new character after all. It's the cat burglar. Remember that villain from back in the Dicko run, actually all the way back from amazing Spider-Man number 30 the cat burglar becomes the new prowler and ultimately his face gets disfigured in a fire. When he recovers, he escapes from the hospital with the prowler gear. And I don't believe we've ever seen this guy again with a disfigured face as the prowler. I think he just kind of disappeared ultimately. And there you go. That's the new prowler. Very memorable. Very cool. Okay. I imagine we might get a little bit of pushback on this next character in terms of being considered forgettable, but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to dig in here, Dan. We are, of course, talking about the Hydro Man, a.k.a. Maury Bench. Now, first of all, we, we talked about this a bit uh, in our Denny O'Neill episode two weeks ago, but like if ever there was a villain who's, you know, based on his origin, who's got a reason to be ticked off at Spider-Man... Like it's Maury Bench, right? Because it's like there, you know. This is, you know, of course, uh, Spider-Man at the docks because that's what the Denny O'Neill run was about. You know, Spider-Man at the docks, <laughs> and he and, <laughs> and there's like a loose electrical cable, and he accidentally knocks Maury into the ocean, where he is then blasted with energy and sent through a propeller blade. And transformed into Hydro Man. So like, you know, like like Spider-Man like kills this guy essentially, but instead of killing him, he actually turns him into a supervillain. But like, like, do you blame this guy for having a bone? This isn't like, you know, Doc Ock, like, oh, uh, I must prove myself superior or Sandman, like I want to get a high school diploma and Spider-Man's getting in my way. No, no. I mean, like this guy's got an axe to grind. And I'm kind of with him on this one. Spider-Man dumb messed up here and created this guy. I would want to like flush him down a toilet too. Honestly, Peter lucked out that he, that he became the Hydra man. Cause otherwise like you've got like a guy sliced into millions of pieces in the ocean to deal with, you know, like he actually would have like accidentally manslaughtered this guy. Yeah. So yeah, that's what happens when you put Spidey at the docks, man. I mean like this isn't the wire. Okay. <laughs> like, like let's like, Come on. 
what what I love about the Hydra Man's first appearance is like how he goes on this tear through the city to find Spider Man, and he's just appearing like out of people's toilets. There's there's an image where he appears out of a water bucket that a janitor is using to mop the floor, and th- that just gets you asking so many questions about like, okay, so he like was came out of a faucet, was put into a bucket and then let the janitor mop him across his body across the floor for a little while before then ultimately revealing himself to this guy. Look, Hydra Man has gone on to be a, like, I wouldn't say a major villain. He's kind of like a a C-lister who appears to be beaten up mostly at the beginning of stories nowadays. I'm thinking about the kind of like pre-Spider Island story where Spider-Man freezes him with like like a freezing tracer. He just shows up every now and again. I don't know. He's just a copy of Sandman. He's just a wet Sandman. It's Hydra Man's in the Sinister Syndicate, right? From uh, the 80s, if I, if right? With Rhino and Boomerang. I believe so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of how he's been used. But, like, he certainly appears often enough where you can consider him part of the rogues gallery in a serious sense. But, yeah, I mean, like, I don't remember the last time there was a legitimate, like, multi-part arc story with hydro man is like the mastermind I mean, because it's not i mean like he's just a he's just a dude who's got a, a rightfully an axe to grind with spider-man and that's kind of it there's no there's no other real story behind him and like even his powers like you would think that these powers would be pretty spectacular like if they were applied the way that Sandman uses his powers but like it, it, it this this seems to be kind of like a a limitation to what writers or, and creators seem to be able to do with Hydro Man in terms of really what he can do. And like you said, instead, he just kind of shows up in, in buckets of water that are being mopped. <laughs> and ultimately, this is another one of those you could argue whether or not Spider-Man kills him at the end of the issue, because like Spider-Man takes him up to a hot roof and then sucker punches him and he basically explodes and evaporates, essentially accidentally killing him. So, you know, that's like the Gog thing. We know he comes back, but in the moment, did Spider-Man kill him? You can you can argue over it if you want. Killed him twice. But now now so, so this next Yeah, I was gonna say this next one's definitely so this forgettable. This guy is really weird. Go for it. It's it's Toy from uh, Spectacular Spider-Man. I had forgotten about this guy's existence. But there's this really, really uh, weird issue where I think it's even the big wheel issue. So like the second issue of Denny O'Neill's run with, with the big wheel. And so after the tinkerer disposes of the big wheel, he just opens this random casket in his room or I guess his, his, his office. And in it is this like black man that he calls toy, this giant muscly Mr. Clean lookalike. And there's no explanation for it. Like, I, like I'm reading this and I'm like, is this a sexual thing? Like, what is going on here? So ultimately, you finally get the story of who Toy is in Spectacular Spider-Man 53. And he's this robot that was built by the Tinkerer, which, again, more questions to be asked. And, and he uses toys that the Tinkerer uses as weapons. So he's essentially a slave to the Tinkerer. Like, again, more problems being introduced here. And yes, he's black and he looks like Mr. Clean and it's all kinds of problematic. And ultimately in this issue, Spider-Man smashes him up, which forces him to realize that he's a robot, which he doesn't know at that point. 
So I guess he's just hanging out in a casket in in Tinkerer's garage like, I'm a sentient being. I'm just going to hang out in here. Nope, he's a robot. And it causes the Tinkerer to, this like emotional devastation that he's lost what seems to be his like love for toy. Mark, this is like the weirdest character ever. And I he never comes back. Have we ever heard from toy again? No, I, I, I don't even think Dan Slott has brought the toy back. So. So there you go. That 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 happened. Next character, probably more mainstream than Toy. We, of course, are talking about Jack-O-Lantern, who first showed up in the Spider-Man mythos in Spectacular 56 and also Marvel Team-Up number 99. But he actually first appeared in Machine Man number 19 for all you Machine Man enthusiasts out there. Jack-O-Lantern, I mean, you know, not a total lame character, right? I mean, like, not, not this, this. The initial story is not much to get totally excited about. I mean, he basically like tries to take over Bellevue Hospital. But now, I'm assuming this initial Jack Lantern is Jason Massendale, right? I mean, did we do we eventually kind of clear that up? Is that established here or later on? Or I mean, but you know, like the character has some longevity certainly in the Spider-Man mythology here. Yeah, this is Jason Massendale. They ultimately in this story can't remove his mask. It's like attached to his head. So we don't really get the identity. But, you know, I thought it was worth mentioning that, like, this is kind of the first, like, major appearance of the Jack-O-Lantern. And so, like, he would ultimately become, like, I would say, like, a B-list Spider-Man rogue. You know, he had a great run of stories with, with Venom. But like he, he became more prominent when he be ultimately became the Hobgoblin himself. And I believe then the dem- Demogoblin, if I'm not mistaken. So like he has a long history in Spider-Man and this is kind of his like debut. I don't think he's mostly memorized, you know, remembered as the, the Jack-O-Lantern more than the kind of big splash he would make as the Hobgoblin. But I, I love the Jack-O-Lantern design. We just even got that a few issues of Amazing Spider-Man ago. From today, the jack-o'-lantern thugs showed up. It's a cool character, even though his, like, pogo glider is really weird. Yeah, no, I mean, like like it's, like I said, there's not much going on in these issues here, but, like, the, certainly the character would be kind of used significantly. Really, I mean, like, really starting in the 80s, during the, hop, like, the DeFalco Hobgoblin arc, I feel like people started using him more. And then, like you said, like, in the, in the aughts on Venom, he was used considerably... When he's presented as kind of this homicidal sociopath the way he is, it's, you know, there's a lot of fun to be had with this character for sure. We are getting into the home stretch here, Dan, which means we got more classic villains, mainly starting with the ringer. And this also brings us back to the Tinkerer in terms of the Tinkerer shows up a lot here, doesn't he? (laughs) In terms of having a hand in this, especially with Roger Stern. Roger Stern really liked bringing the Tinkerer back around. It makes sense. I mean, like I lo- the idea that Spider-Man has these kind of like just average criminals that then get upgraded in some way is kind of a reoccurring theme for the character. Now, the Ringer was originally a Defenders villain, but I think he's kind of gone on to become more of a kind of like maybe even E-list Spider-Man villain. He's the kind of guy that gets beat up at the beginning of a book. He has like a kind of memorable story in uh, the ultimate Spider-Man where he is like a reoccurring almost like replacement for the shocker as like a villain to just kind of repeatedly beat up. He's kind of a prototypical shocker 
kind of character. But in here, he is like a total coward, right? He's captured by the beetle who is kind of trying to remake himself into a more powerful force. And the beetle forces him to fight the overpowered Spider-Man against his will. So he doesn't want to fight Spider-Man, but he ultimately has no choice. And Spider-Man can kind of tell, but still, you know, cleans his clock. And, and to me, what's notable about the ringer here is I actually feel like Nick Spencer in redesigning the shocker for superior foes kind of mixed up his wires with the ringer because the ringer is the one that's the coward. And as much as I like the kind of new shocker interpretation, it really is just kind of a, like, a, again, like I said, he's just a copy of the ringer in some ways. It's it's an interesting villain for sure. And yeah, like I, I do agree with you in terms of like the way he's used mostly nowadays is kind of like cannon fodder in the beginning, uh, which is fine. I mean, you need that. I mean, all, all comic book stories need that. But yeah, I, I, I but like, yeah, I think E-list is probably the best way I would describe him. I mean, this is not really a character. You're not building stories around the ringer for sure. Which brings us to our final villain of the list, which maybe might be more of an adversary for last week's special guest, Lonesome Pincus than anyone else and that is of course ramrod 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 originally appearing in daredevil number 103 which was a team-up issue with spider-man so at least there's some continuity there ramrod decides to spike beer at a bar because they don't appreciate good country music and wouldn't give him an audition and because when I look at this guy, I see country music singer. <laughs> I just see someone that I don't recognize because every time I see him show up on the page, I'm like, oh, who is that? He is the definition of forgettable. And speaking of which, he's the last of our villains that we're going to be talking about tonight. So I hope you guys really enjoyed this kind of glimpse through the villains of the late 70s and early 80s in the pages of Spider-Man, some more memorable than others, but I think a period of time where most of the villains are kind of major head scratchers. Oh, no question. I mean, you know, there were, there were definitely a couple of winners here that have kind of stood the test of time, but I mean, Dan, we've talked about 25 different characters here, and I think the hit or miss percentage is quite heavily tilted towards the miss. <laughs> so everybody, if you guys find this show entertaining and valuable, please consider supporting us. Recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend, and if you're able, become a member on our Patreon. We can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. And we are constantly making exclusive content for our members. This week, it's a special mailbag episode where we answer, where we answer all the questions you submitted on Patreon. Next week, Amazing Spider-Man is starting back up, and so are we, so stay tuned for a review of Amazing Spider-Man Volume 5, number 43. Plus, they are all interactive, so tune in and leave us your thoughts and comments about any topic we are discussing. Yeah, so since new comic issues aren't coming out right now, at least for the next couple of weeks, why not take that $3.99 and put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. And then, when comic stores open back up, You'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that it comes out. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. This season, we'll be mailing out a print of Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, drawn by official Marvel artist Max Fiamora in color and inks. 
Plus, every episode we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. We know this is a hard time for everybody, so we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And a thank you to all the members who already make this show possible. But it's that time, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, as always, this episode was edited by Rick Coast with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Ryland Bojack and Spider Madge. Plus, our new introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. Dan, this was a lot of fun, but, you know, what's coming up next? I want to know what more fun we're going to be having. Well, for our next episode, we're going to be moving away from the pages of the comics to talk about the two Spider-Man television shows that started during this era of Spider-Man's history and helped to spread the character to a new generation of fans. So first up is the 1981 Spider-Man cartoon show, followed by Spider-Man and his amazing friends. I'm really excited, Mark, to talk about these shows after binging them for the past several weeks and, you know, from my childhood. If you guys want to watch alongside us, both shows are now available in their entirety on Disney+. Plus. So, you know, watch the show. Don't watch the show. Come join us. Are you excited about this? Mark? I am, Dan. It was pretty wild when I was rewatching this the other day. I, I was there was one episode of the original Spider-Man 81 series where I was like, I have seen this episode before. Where have I seen it? And I, you know, power of Google, because we live in this society now where I can do that. And I found out that it, it was an episode of Doctor of Spider-Man versus Doctor Doom. And there was this old VHS uh, tape that I had that my dad got me I think from like a Woolworths or something like that it was like all these old classic Marvel cartoons and each one was like f- focused on a different villain and this was like a Doctor Doom set so there was like episodes of the Fantastic Four animated series the Hanna-Barbera series and then this one from Spider-Man and I was like holy crap now I remember where I saw this <laughs> that's very cool Mark so yeah I'm excited about this conversation and we're also going to be joined by YouTube star Godzilla Mendoza so if you're a fan of his channel he's going to be joining us he talks a lot about animated cartoons of Spider-Man and so we thought he'd be the perfect guy to kind of bring on to discuss this with us But don't forget, if you're tuning in live, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk Live this time, check us out on YouTube next time, Sunday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. But don't worry, this is still a podcast that will always remain consistent, just like how we end the show, and that's with our motto. So Mark, until we get a villain that's a reincarnated Nazi skeleton covered in more... Murder Hornets. What Dan is trying to say here is that with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing Spider Talk. Don't, Don't miss the next in.